0: take a, a short detour this Sunday from our illustrated gospel series uh, to, to deal with the topic of the day Palm Sunday amen it's a it's an important sunday in the the calendar of the church because it marks the beginning of what we call holy week and and as i said earlier it sort of sets the table for the events that happen in the rest of the week in the gospel account uh, around the the Last Supper, the crucifixion, the punishment of Christ, his burial, and his resurrection. A lot of uh, events happen in that short period of time. We're going to be today, really, we're going to talk about that, what they call the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where Jesus comes in with his disciples and to celebrate it and try and pick out a few important details out of that that might have relevance to us in our contemplation of our relationship with Christ and our devotion to him and our service as disciples. So if you want to go with me to Luke chapter 19, that's where we're going to be this morning, Luke chapter 19 in verse 28. Oh that's a little hot. If you pull that back for me, please. And just before this, there's a lot of stuff that happens. I mean, if you, if you just kind of flip back, if you've got a Bible with you or an app like I have, if you, if you just kind of go back a few uh, chapters before this, this is a, a period where Jesus is, is kind of in, at least as we're recorded here. Now, we've got, we've got three years of the ministry of Jesus, right? And we know because the Bible tells us that there are things that he told the disciples who were right there with him he told them some things that were that we don't have recorded because it was meant for them in that moment and in that time and god did not see fit to communicate that down through the gospels some of those truths i expect some of those doctrines and ideas i suspect god inspired the other writers of the new testament to begin to speak some of those things, so that they would be communicated to us, but we don't have an hour by hour, minute by minute account of the ministry of Jesus. So, if you look at this, what you'll find, uh, and by the way, the, the triumphal entry, as it's called, is one of the things that is is included in what we call the synoptic gospels. That means it's, it's that story appears in all four Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of those gospels. And if you uh, are interested later, you could go, you know, go to the the magic Google machine and Google uh, the Synoptic Gospels, and it will give you an account of all of the things that we find in all four of the Gospels, and there's quite a lot, and then we'll see that there are some that we'll will find accounts that two of the Gospel writers mention, but the other two don't, or one of them does and the others don't, and that is not in any way an indictment of the... The truth of the gospels—that's just the normal course of of human observation, right? Not everybody was there for all of the same events at all of the same times, and they recollect things uh, slightly differently. Uh, we've talked about this before. You know, we could, in fact, if we were to go after today and ask all of you to give an eyewitness account of what happened here today, some of you would. There would be a lot of things that you all observed and took in, and and would write down and say, well, this happened, and then there would be things that other people, because they see through a different lens, they have a different life experience, they're interested in different things, or they have a vantage point that is different, they will note things that others don't, but might agree with some others who saw the same things, and we might even find people who noted things that no one else even, didn't even occur to them. And so that's not a, that's not a a diluting of the the proof or the power of the Gospels, it's really something that reminds us that uh, there's humanity behind the work of putting the Gospels together, that God inspired these people to write these things down. And for each of them, what we believe as people who believe in the inspiration of God is that each one of them wrote down exactly what it was God intended for them to write down. He inspired them to record what they recorded. So, uh, if you were to take back and flip back through these chapters, preceding chapters, you'll see a lot of the big stories that we might remember. uh, Jesus meeting with Zacchaeus at his house. Uh, The the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Uh, The tale, the parable of what we call the ten talents. Uh, Some of them, like the the ESV that we use here, calls it the ten minas. It's a a measure of, of value. It's a coin. It's money. And uh, that story and how it relates to the kingdom of God. So Jesus is just telling story after story after story. And he's performing miracles and including the the ultimate miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead after he's been in there for a while. In fact, uh, one of my uh, favorite verses in the Bible is related to that because when Jesus goes there to, to the place where Lazarus has been buried... And he says, open the tomb. A friend standing next to him says, Lord, he stinks. Maybe not such a good idea, but Jesus knows what he wants to do, and he has a plan in mind, right? And so he he tells him to do that. And so we see that great story. So that leads up to this incredible entry. And I think there might be a couple of places here where hopefully you'll hear something that maybe is new to you, not that I'm trying to, to communicate truth, it's never been communicated, but I'm always looking for ways to understand things out of the scriptures that maybe uh, haven't been elevated as much in our thinking or have a, a different approach to them, and so I hope to hit that today. But here we are, chapter 19 of Luke, verse 28, and when he had said these things, that's, and literally that is the story of the, the ten talents and the servants who do different things with them and are treated differently, if you're not familiar with that story, Go back today and read it. And if you have questions, you know, search some things online, shoot me an email, I'll I'll be happy to discuss it with you. When Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say to this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, the two, those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now, this section is important for a couple of reasons. One of them, the first one is that this section right here specifically fulfills an Old Testament prophecy that says the Messiah would come into the city riding on the back of a young donkey. And so, Jesus, of course, is aware of this prophecy. Now, we could say, if we thought Jesus was some sort of a a charlatan, right, pulling the wool over everybody's eyes, that because he's a learned rabbi that he knows this, that he's trying to, to, to fool the people and present himself as the Messiah because they also know that the prophecy says the Messiah will enter into the gates of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And I think this is why the next part of this occurs the way that it does. We see here that there's no pre-planning. The, nobody knows where they're going to get the colt, They've been traveling the countryside. They've not been in the village they're going to, the the city that they're going to, for weeks. They've been elsewhere, doing the work of the ministry. But Jesus says, go into this town, and you will find a young donkey, not just a young donkey, but tied up, and a young donkey that no one has ever been on before, no one has ever ridden before, and bring it to me, and... If anyone asks you, you say to them, the master needs this, this donkey. Now, just think that through. One, what are the odds that they'll go into just this next place that they're going, they're traveling, they've been traveling around the countryside, you know, they walked everywhere they went. What are the odds that in that place there will be on the street somewhere a young donkey tied up that no one's ever ridden on. Okay, it it could happen, right? But then put yourself in the place of the one who owns the donkey. You come outside and someone's trying to take your Mustang out of the driveway. And you go, what are you doing? And they say, the master needs it. You go, oh. Sure, here's the keys. You know, livestock, agriculture, th- those were the currency for these people in these agrarian lifestyles. You were judged, if you weren't part of the, the elite, you know, the government, uh, merchants who who had commerce within the cities, which was really really just beginning to become a a thing in this period in history in the Roman uh, Empire. Prior to this, when, when, you know, the Romans built, if you've ever been to Europe and driven through uh, Germany and Belgium and places like that on a tour bus or something like that, you still see the old Roman roads and the aqueducts that are everywhere. But those things were constructed by the Roman Empire, and they gave rise to cities, and they gave rise to commerce like we think of it today in like a capitalistic type version where people had shops and stores and goods that they sold and, and importing and exporting. That, that didn't exist before those kinds of, of roadways and waterways existed. And so here in this place, as that's just beginning to become a thing in the world, the Roman Empire, Jesus says, go into town, you're going to find somebody, and I want you to take from them without asking. Part of that which is their wealth. Part of that which is, is their sustenance. That young donkey isn't going to stay young. He's growing towards a purpose, to work. And you're going to go in there, and when they say, why are you taking that? You say, the master needs it, and they will give it to you. This was the proof to those disciples that Jesus wasn't just saying something and hoping it was going to work out and he wasn't a a trickster trying to put something together. The fact that that owner would let that donkey go was significant. Did he know who Jesus was? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Is that why he let it go? We don't know. Is it simply that when they said those words, because it was intended by God to be the fulfillment of the prophecy, that that God moved in the owner of the donkey and he felt willing to let it go? I don't know, but it happened. And God orchestrated it that way to give further evidence of the divinity of Christ because he, he, he was able to not only foresee how this would work out but understood the implication of it and those around him saw that. It's one one more little stone in, in building the foundation of who Jesus is as he fulfills so many prophecies. Now the second reason that that's important is because here soon Jesus is going to make his entrance into the city of Jerusalem and there are a lot of people there With a lot of expectations about the Messiah and who he was going to be and what he was going to do. And in their minds, the Messiah would likely come riding in on the back of a valiant steed, arrayed with all the tools of war, sword flashing. Air flowing, horse snorting, pounding the the dirt to come in and wrench the authority of the Romans who were oppressing God's people from their own hands and free the people of God, the Jews, from the heel of the Russian authority. (laughs) Russian, wow. Well, welcome to 2023. (laughs) No, I'm not going to chase it. Leave leave it alone. (laughs) The Roman authority. They both start with R. I'll, I'll claim that. They were looking for a political leader. They were looking for a military revolution. And again, there's there's prophecy that they're thinking of, and they're interpreting in their own mind and in their own environment, thinking that this is how this is going to go because they know that there's a Messiah coming. They know that there's rescue coming. They know that God has the intent to free them and everyone else. But their version, their definition of freedom is not the definition that God is bringing in the hands of Jesus Christ. It's a different freedom. And so the prophecy says it'll be a young cult. Jesus says it'll be a young cult. And even so, isn't this like us sometimes when we hear the truth of what God says, we still expect something different? We want something different. Can we be content in our own lives as God leads and moves and directs us and lays out our path? That he truly is good and that he truly does know what is best for us. That he will guide those steps if we will be faithful. Right? That's what the scripture says that a faithful servant, God will order their steps. And so Jesus gets on the back of this donkey because this is a completely different power dynamic that is riding into. And it shouldn't be missed that the the donkey is is noted as what kind of a beast? What do we call it? A beast of burden, right? Jesus is here in this picture. the, The prophecy in this picture is foretelling that Jesus will become the sins of the world, the burden of sin, born on the back of this lowly, Unimportant, undeveloped donkey. With no power of its own. It's not aesthetically beautiful compared to a you know a, a giant Arabian steed of some kind. It's not considered to be smart. <clears throat> it just does what it does. And then he makes his entrance, and that's where we pick it up. And they brought it to Jesus, verse 35, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now that right there, this is one of those things that I think gets missed a little bit, and I want to dig this out a little bit. One, it says, uh, let me go down just a little bit more. As he was drawing near, verse 37, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, this laying down of the the coats, the cloaks, we see this another time in Scripture, and it's over in 1 Kings chapter 9. And I don't know if you got that passage or not. Um, I sent it very late because uh, I was still trying to work out the bugs in my head. And I just want to take you over to 1 Kings chapter 9. I'll give you the verse here in just a second. Oh, maybe 2 Kings. <laughs> I bookmarked this. I don't know why I'm poking around. I already bookmarked it. That's 2 Kings chapter 9. Verse 14 is where this story begins. Now, last week I mentioned about Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right, having a big smackdown uh, on the, the, the mountain, and God showing himself in a miraculous way. We're a little bit later in that story. Now, Elijah has died. Uh, actually, he didn't die. He was taken up by a whirlwind into heaven. And then a guy named Elisha was named to be the, the prophet after him. But the wicked queen, queen, Jezebel, is still in power and still doing terrible things. And God finally uh, sets his plan into motion. And he sends some people to anoint a guy named Jehu, J-E-H-U, to be the king of the people of Israel. And his assignment is to go and defeat the evil reign of Jezebel. And that's what unfolds here in these verses from like 14 through, uh, I don't know, goes through about the end, of the end of the chapter into chapter, yeah, right up to chapter 10. But as this occurs, uh, Jehu is anointed the king. He's given his assignment. He begins to gather some people with him. They ride to go to uh, the palace to begin taking out the queen's guards. And as they do... The Queen's guards are looking out over the, the the rampart of their city, the walls, and they see a group coming and they start going, Huh, who are those guys? Are they friend or foe? And so they send out a rider and he rides out, probably a camel, didn't have horses. Gets out there, meets Shehu and he says, Are you here for peace or war? And Jehu says, what do I have to do with peace? Get in line behind me and ride with me. And he communicates right then that we're not here to be friends. And if you want to stay alive, basically, join me. And so he does. He starts riding with them. And then they're they're back on the ramparts and they look out. And the watch says, hey, you know, uh, Bob, he went out there on the camel and chatted with him. But he's like, now he's not coming back. He's like riding with them. What's up with that? They said, I don't know. Send somebody else out there. So they grab Larry and put him on a camel and send him out there, and he rides out there. Hello, are you here for war or for peace? And Jehu says, what do I have to do with peace? Get in line behind me and ride with me. And he does. And now they begin to note in the walls of the city, that this is an attack that's coming, and war is at their doorstep. When Jehu was anointed king, when he came out of the, the building that he was in, and the people were beginning to receive him, they laid their cloaks down on the on the stairs for him to walk on. It's the only other time in scripture that it's mentioned. But the implication in Jehu's story was that there was a ruler that God was intent on bringing to justice. And there was a new king arriving on the scene. And when Jesus rode that simple, plain, little beast of burden into the gates of Jerusalem and the people began to throw down their cloaks, it was a shadow. It was a reminder of a time. When there was a brutal dictator, and in this case it wasn't the Roman authorities, it was, it was the enemy himself, it was Satan himself, and the sin that he had brought into the lives of the people. And he's the master of those. The Bible tells us that when we are apart from Christ, we are slaves to the one who is the master of sin. We're slaves to sin. And his freedom brings us the opportunity instead to be bond servants of righteousness. So, when Jesus comes in and they lay their cloaks down and they're waving the palm fronds, all of those things are expressions of royalty. And there is a new king coming to town. And there is a wicked ruler that he is assigned to take out. And that's his mission. We can see it with our lens today of all the rest of the revelation of Scripture about how he is coming to defeat sin and death and the grave and offer eternal life. And some of those in the crowd that day understood this. But some of them did not. Verse 37, as he was drawing near, back in uh, Luke 19, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives... The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now, understand that this group, this whole multitude, it says here that these are his disciples. These are people who had been traveling with him throughout the countryside, people that had sat when he served the meal of the five loaves and the two fishes and and multiplied it so greatly that at the end there were 12 baskets full of food that the disciples could take home to their families. These are the same people who were with him a week ago in Bethany when he arrived and his dear friend Lazarus has, has died and has been dead for several days. And Jesus stands in the street looking at the mourning of the people around him And Jesus himself weeps at the brokenness of humanity because of the sting that death has brought. And they watched him call Lazarus from the tomb. They have seen and heard of those that he restored their sight. He's brought back their hearing. He's cured their leprosy. He's given them hope in the most hopeless of situations. They know Jesus. And they celebrate him. And they say in verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I want to focus finally here on this word peace in heaven and glory in the highest because what comes next Jesus does something it says something only recorded by uh, Luke's gospel that I think gives insight into the mind and thought of Jesus in this time and it relates back to the guys writing out to Jehu and saying are you here for peace or are you here for war? He says, What do I have to do with peace? And now Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. There are scriptures that, where he says, I've come to bring peace to you between you and God. There are other places where he says, I didn't come for peace, I came for war. They seem to be at odds with each other. But put that in the context of what I've just said. Who has he come to make war with? Not you. With the enemy, the one who holds you captive, the one who has you in bondage to sin, he comes to make war with him. And if you want to have peace with God, you have to get behind him and ride. Or you can try to stand on the other side with the enemy and you will not know peace, you will know war. When he says he comes to bring peace, when he's the prince of of peace he is coming to bring peace between a battered and broken and sinful humanity and a holy and righteous god and that peace comes through our agreement to be with Jesus to ride with Jesus and so they know that idea they know that idea because they say he has come to bring peace right but we don't know what kind of peace they mean. Do they mean peace with the government? Do they mean an end of the the turmoil of, of authority and all that kind of stuff? Some of them do. Do some of them understand the spiritual implications? Perhaps. But here's what happens next. The Pharisees say, your disciples are too loud, they're too much of a rabble, tell them to be quiet. And Jesus says, in this moment, if I told them to be quiet, even the very dust of this ground, those stones, that granite, that limestone, that whatever, obsidian, lava, whatever rocks are right down there in that ground, these rocks would start singing out my praise and testify to who I am. And it says that when he drew near and saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, because Jerusalem is the centerpiece now of the Jewish Faith, right? It's where the temple is. It's, it's where the vast majority of the, the the Jewish people are gathered and living. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. I didn't find this in any of the commentaries. There was a lot of discussion here, and there is. If you go on and read here, he He talks about the destruction of the temple that is coming in 70 A.D. It's going to be, the the descriptions of it is it's torn down brick from brick, nothing left. And that's today, it still has not been rebuilt in Jerusalem. There's certainly an an element of that here. But think about what Jesus has just said. Think about the connection to the story of Jehu and, and the cost of peace And Jesus is saying, here I come riding into Jerusalem on the back of this lowly little beast of burden, becoming the very burden of sin for all of you. And oh, if you only knew the cost to buy that peace. Because the cost is going to be born in the body of Jesus himself. He's going to be bruised. He's going to be punished. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be murdered in order to make peace between us and God. This is why he weeps, because he also knows, kind of like when he wept when Lazarus died. Another time he wept over a man who was blind and and had been an outcast in his community. And Jesus looked at the heavens and wept over that. Every one of those instances is when he looked at the humanity around him. He looks at Jerusalem and he thinks about all of those people. And he thinks about all of the suffering that they've endured because of sin. And if they only knew that without his intervention the cost of that peace would rest on each one of them instead. And so they clamor for peace, they clamor for joy, they sing Hosanna to the Lord, they shout his name, they throw their their blankets down, they're excited, they're thrilled, they're noisy, they're rambunctious, but they are not aware that just in a moment's time, if things had been different, God would consign them to pay the price for their sin. But He has offered a way out. He's offered a scapegoat. He's offered a burden in their place, and that burden is Jesus. And when we come to Palm Sunday today and we want to celebrate, we want to say Hosanna, we should. Hosanna in the highest. Praise God for all that He's done. We should not, we cannot forget that what He has done for us was bought with a price. And it's a price that, praise God, when we submit ourselves to Jesus, we no longer have to pay because he has paid it for us. We should, I should, be more persistent, being thankful, being grateful, expressing my praise to an almighty God that when he had every right to to reject me and leave me on the outside and keep me away from his holy presence, he instead said, I have found a way to welcome you into my presence. Be forgiven. Be righteous. Be holy. I'll pay the price. Thanks be to God. Amen. Worship team, come and join us. Let's sing one last song together today, and uh, then we'll be dismissed. For us, thank you, friend.